Good morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Theo Siu. I'm an associate pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Chicago. Um, if any of you have met Pastor Nathan Carter there, uh, he's my pastor. He um, kind of discipled me and shepherded me uh, since I was 18 at that church, uh, walked me through life basically and raised me up. Um, we're really great friends with uh, Brainerd Church. Uh, I've met Eric a couple times now at different, um, at different ministry events, and he's always been super thoughtful. And even when we were picking a text and sermon for today, he was very meticulous and thoughtful about what would be best for you and what would best serve you this morning. Um, I've also been in touch with Clayton uh, before when I preached here, so you guys have always been super hospitable to me and my church, and I hope I can be a blessing to you guys this morning and preach that, a word that God would have us here this morning. So would you pray with me one more time? Pray that God would speak through his word and that we would be able to hear what he has to say and be attentive to what he would want us to know this morning. Uh, Father God, I pray for Brainerd Avenue Baptist Church. I pray for the people here, Lord. I thank you for uh, the faithfulness of the pastors here, of the members here. Um, I pray that you would bless them, Lord, this morning. I pray that the well, word that you have for them would be heard, that the Holy Spirit would work in our lives to convict us of sin uh, and to comfort us once again with the great truths of your gospel, that Jesus Christ really did come and die for sinners like us, and that we really do have forgiveness in him and can stand before you right, clean, and pure knowing that you love us and all your thoughts and plans for us are good and they're for us. I pray that you would encourage us this morning with your word. Uh, be with me. Help me to preach clearly. Help me to say only what you have me to say today. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read the text aloud, the whole thing. It is a little bit long. Uh, the text today comes from 2 Samuel 15. Verses 1 through 37. 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 through 37. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand Take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Amram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, 
As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor from his city, Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And the messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Giddites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Giddite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, Wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittai passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the book Kidron, and all the people passed on towards the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the Ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back, and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimez, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming into the summit where God worshipped him, where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came out to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you will return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in times past, 
So now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the council of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into Jerusalem, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I might date myself with this example, but I am part of the millennial generation, and we are really, really interested in Instagram. Um, We really like social media, and one of my favorite things to do on social media is to go through and look at all the self-help posts there. There's self-help posts on how to best run your money, how to best lose weight, get in shape fast, how to best become the wise, grand person that you want to be, meditate, take cold showers, uh, journal, do all these things. In so many ways, we live in a very goal-oriented environment. Everyone is trying to figure out the secret. How do I fix my life? What do I have to do to make it in this world? How can I be successful in life? Even I want to know these secrets myself, so I would save every one of these posts on my phone and honestly never look at them again. But we all want to know, right? We all want to know how to be a success in life. But I wonder if some of us this morning, maybe, don't have the luxury of another 10 years to put things back together again. I wonder if some of us have messed up, have made such a wreck of things that no matter what we do, how hard we work, how much we try to better ourselves, maybe we just can't walk away from the mistakes of our past. What hope do we have when we're stuck in the midst of sin's consequences? What do we do when the alcohol has already taken a toll on our bodies? when our marriages have already ended in divorce, when there's no 12-step program for poor sinners like us. Our text today in 2 Samuel 15 shows King David needing to come face-to-face with the consequences of his sin. During this period of his story, David had messed up big time. And now all the consequences of his sin are starting to fall on his head. And there isn't really anything he can do to fix it. What is David going to do now that he's messed up his life? What hope can poor sinners have when all hope seems lost? In short, this portion of David's story teaches us a very simple lesson today. God's people can still pray even in the midst of his punishments. God's people can still pray even in the midst of this punishment. This story, this text we've read in front of us is long, but really it breaks down into two kings. Two kings. Verses 1 through 12 talks about one king who demonstrates religious righteousness before others. While verses 13 through 37 Show a king that's demonstrating real repentance before God. 
a king who demonstrates religious righteousness, and a king who demonstrates real repentance before God. So, Samuel is a big book. Where are we now with the story of David? If you take a large cursory scan over this entire section, you'll notice some unusual parallels in this story. Absalom, David's son, is pictured going into the city of Hebron and being declared a king there, just like David was in 2 Samuel 2. In the height of his rebellion, Absalom seems to be taking the exact same road as David did when he first was crowned king in the beginning of this book. And what's going on with David? He's been stripped of his throne. Not only has the people's hearts been stolen away, but his own right-hand advisor, even his own son, has turned against him. And as he walks out of the city, David is seen leaving behind the Ark of the Covenant. In the picture, it looks like everybody has abandoned David, even God himself. And this is unusual because if you're reading the story of First and Second Samuel, you'll realize that right now, here in Second Samuel 15, David looks like he's in the exact place Saul was at when Saul was abandoned by God, when Saul was disobedient, and when Saul was stripped of his throne. And why shouldn't David be here? Starting from 2 Samuel 11, the story highlights some of the greatest blunders any king could ever make. David took another man's wife. David, when he couldn't hide the consequences, killed Uriah so that no one would know. Following this, David's own son takes advantage of his sister, and when David finds out about it, David does absolutely nothing. It was up to Absalom to kill Amnon. It was up to Absalom to take his sister into his household. And rather than talk to his son about the mess, about the wreck of their life and their family, to apologize for what he did, David sends his son away. Absalom literally has to turn the world upside down, burn down everything around him just to get an audience with his dad, just to talk to him. And when he finally gets there, all David does is give him a simple kiss and send him on his way again. Friends, we need to be very clear on this. We need to not have any jaded perception here. As a king... As a husband, as a father, David failed miserably. And he deserves everything that he's got coming. Just like you and I do when we sin and mess up. But is this it? Is it over for David? One of the main questions that 2 Samuel is trying to get us to wrestle with is whether David will end up just like Saul, stripped of his throne and abandoned by God. And like all the great stories in the Bible, it's really in the details that you notice the differences. The scene of our text today opens with Absalom, David's son, riding in with a great entourage of horses before him. Already, after that first line, the careful student of the Bible immediately knows that this is a problem. This gathering of horses 
is a bad sign according to Deuteronomy 17.16. Day after day, Absalom is pictured standing in front of the gates of the city and saying to the people who walk in to see the king in verses 3, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judged in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And the twisting of the knife, he sends these people away with a kiss, just like dear old dad. And in this way, Absalom stole the hearts of the people away. Absalom's a great politician here. But not only does he fake piety to gain popularity with the masses, we also see here in this text, Absalom has no problem using religion as a, main, as a means of gaining a political edge. Using religion as a means of gaining a political edge. Look with me at verse 7 here in the text. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur and Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers through all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Devious, fakes piety, uses religion to gain popularity and be a great politician. What's the point that the text is trying to make here? Although Absalom looks really good on the outside, has all the outward formalities of a great and noble man, in truth his heart is in a very different place. And this is an important warning for us today. Friends, I don't know all of you in here. I don't know if you're brand new to the Christian faith or not. Maybe some of you don't really know a whole lot about what this Jesus thing is all about. But let me tell you this right now. The Bible, Christianity, is not another self-help book. The Bible says that you can have all the right fitness routines. You can look the part, be a successful leader, a visionary, an entrepreneur, You can even subscribe to the right beliefs, memorize the right verses, graduate from the right institutions, have the best jobs and social etiquette, and still be just as damned as the devil himself. Just because you look the part on the outside or find certain disciplines easier doesn't mean that you're right with God. The Bible was asking a deeper question this morning to each of us. Where is our heart? Do we really understand what Christianity is about, what Jesus is about, what Jesus actually did at the cross? Is that our primary motivation in life, or is there something else? some other motivation, some aim for power or prestige you're trying to get at by feigning righteousness, by looking good before others? Are some of us maybe even using the name of God for our own ends? 
in life. I don't know you, but I can tell you straight up the consequences of outward virtue without any real heart change are devastating. No matter how disciplined you are, how successful you are, if you are not truly right with God, all this hypocrisy will one day destroy your life. I know this because it's going to destroy Absalom's life. So if Christianity simply isn't a self-help book about obtaining the right goals in life, what is it about? What does the Bible have to offer to poor sinners like you and me? What makes King David so different in the Bible? As we stated earlier, by all physical markers, David looks to be cursed by God. But when we start taking a look closer at David's actions, we see that David's response is substantially different. Right from the start, David does his best to ensure that his sin doesn't fall out on other people. While he isn't able to do this perfectly, we see here, starting at verse 18, that David is concerned no one else has to take the fall for what he himself did. Look with me at verse 18 here. Sorry, 19. Then the king said to Ittai the Gedite, Why do you also deal with us? Go back, stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back, take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show you steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Now, I've never been in the military. I'm not a great uh, geopolitical strategist or war veteran. Uh, but I can imagine, if I was in David's shoes, and a coup was forming, and there was a army that's out to get me, to kill me and my family, I wouldn't send any man home. I would make sure, you want to stay with me? Let's go. Like, you want to, like, leave your family to come join my army? Sold. Let's do it. Let's go. I need all the men I can get. I wouldn't really be concerned about the livelihood of other people when, like, my life is on the stake, when my family's life is on the stake. But David's a different kind of king than me. As these foreign warriors come to join David in exile, David's doing his best to convince them to return, to even pledge their loyalties to Absalom because he knows that they'd be safer there. He had every reason to gather as many allies as he could, but at the end of the day, David doesn't manipulate others to protect himself. He lets them choose if they want to go back. Why? We see in verses 24 through 29, David has fully entrusted his fate to the Lord. As David is running away, the priests come bringing the Ark of the Covenant. Again, another tactical advantage. If you remember in 1 Samuel 4 how the Ark of the Covenant worked, Everybody 
thought that God's presence was with the Ark of the Covenant. If you had that, you had God on your side. It would have been easy for David to use the Ark as a good luck charm. It would have been easy for him to use religion here to manipulate the people to believe that God was on his side. But David doesn't do any of that. Look with me in verse 25 here. David says to the priests, carry the ark of God back to the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. David here is exemplifying real repentance. What it means to be real about your sin before God. He owns his sin, doesn't try to hide it. And at the same time, he leaves a little window open, hoping that God might have mercy and bring him home after all this is said and done. But most importantly, out of all the things that David does here, David still prays, even when he's blown it. Even all, in spite of all his sins, all the ways he's ruined things and wrecked his life, David still has enough faith in God's mercy to pray when his back is against the wall. The story describes at the bottom here that Absalom won over the loyalties of Ahithophel. Now, if, if you don't... If, if, if you haven't read First and Second Samuel in a while, Ahithophel is mentioned in Second Samuel 16 as the greatest advisor in the entire kingdom. Ahithophel's advice was unbeatable. He was a brilliant strategist. And if he was set to kill David, David really has no hope of getting out of this alive. So what does David do? with his back against the wall and all around him looking like he's been cursed by God. David does an amazing thing here. He still prays. He still asks God to help him. Look with me here in verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. This is an insane prayer. After all you did, after all the ways you broke God's commandments, you still dare to pray to God to deliver you. And what's most crazy and and amazing about this text is that in the next verse, God answers his prayer and sends Hushai, sends David's friend, And as you read the rest of the story, Hushai becomes instrumental in tearing down Ahithophel's advice. Hushai becomes God's instrument to save the life of King David. 
And as Hushai races back into the city, the story here ends at verse 37 with Hushai arriving right in the nick of time as Absalom also enters the city. Now there's a lot more we can say about the lives of David and Absalom. But as we close out here, there are a couple things I want to point out. We are a little over halfway through the year. And I'm guessing that if you haven't already messed up in some ways, you probably will. Let me make this clear. I'm praying that you don't. I'm praying that you don't sin. It's always better not to sin than to deal with the consequences. It's always better to keep yourself pure than indulge in pornography. It's always better to keep yourself in line with God than to feign fake religious piety before others. It's always better to do the right thing than to have to make up for doing the wrong thing. But you and I don't live in an ideal world. We mess up. We sin. I sin. In big ways. We blow it all the time. And some of us today have blown it in ways that we can't really fix anymore. And what Christianity asks us is what are you going to do when you've realized that you've blown it all the way? Are you going to hide? Try to cover everything up. Justify yourself. Act like a good person and act like those things don't really matter anymore. Or maybe some of you just feel so hopeless that you're about to give up on God, your life, and your future altogether. Throw it all away. Friends, I'm here to tell you this morning For those of you who feel the weight of sin, feel like you've messed up, feel like there's no coming back from what you've done, your life is not over. God is gracious. And even in the midst of his discipline, God's people can still cry out to him. Don't pretend that you're better than you are. But also don't give up hope that God can't still save you. Do the damage control you need to make sure the people around you are safe. Turn away from your sin and do whatever you've got to do to make sure you never look back to it again. But most importantly of all, do what David does. And trust your life once again into the hands of God and pray. Real Christians aren't those who have it all together. Real Christians are those who have a realistic perspective of who we are and who God is. Now some of you, some of you may have hidden sins and you're, you're kind of scared. You're worried that if you really came out, if you really told the truth about what you've done, you're afraid of the consequences of what might happen. That maybe God might finally strike you down at last. But is that really what God is like? Part of the reason I love David so much is because when you read the Bible, he really is the best king of the Old Testament. 
Even in his worst moments, David still climbed the mountain, owned up to his sin, called out to the Lord, accepted God's discipline, and in so doing, he taught all God's people what they were to do when they were faced with the consequences of their sin. But when we get to the New Testament, the latter half of our Bibles, another king comes. Like David, Jesus Christ climbed the Mount of Olives, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, even though he was scared, even though he didn't want to do it, he embraced the cup of God's wrath. But you see, the difference is Jesus didn't do it for his own sins. After living a perfect life, after demonstrating that he was a superior king to David in every respect, Jesus demonstrated his ultimate supremacy by taking God's wrath for poor sinners like you and me. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our sin was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. The greatest paradox of the Christian faith, what this thing is all about at the very center, is that if you trust in Christ, the only sins that you need to deal with are the sins that Jesus Christ already dealt with at the cross. Because Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath for my sins, we don't have to be so afraid to follow him up the Mount of Olives. Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath when he saw us at our worst. And because Jesus has already secured our standing before God, we can own up to the consequences of our sins. And trust our fates into the hands of this God. This God who was so merciful that he was willing even to die for sinners like us. I don't know where you're at right now. Some of you may be Christians who have stumbled along the way. Some of you may have really never understood what Christianity is all about. But I want to call you today is to come forward. Be honest about your sin. Pray to God and ask God for help and deliverance from your situation in life. And then work with your brothers and sisters here in the church. Find a way to find the healing that you need. Yes, there's, there's always consequences to sin. Yes, there's always damage done. But because Jesus is at the right hand of God right now praying for us, we can be certain that we too can still pray even in the midst of his punishments. Because Jesus has already paid the penalty, you know that whatever discipline God brings on you ultimately isn't meant to destroy you. It's meant to correct. It's meant to keep you on the path so that ultimately, even beyond this life, he can bring you home again. And I'm praying that you'll Make the right decisions. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ and find your way home even beyond this life. I'm going to pray right now um, and we're going to close out. Uh, if any of you would like to talk to me, I'll stick around for a little bit and, and we can, I can pray for you. If any of you need to talk to someone about what it means to trust in Jesus, Pastor Clayton would be more than happy to talk with you and pray with you. There's other Christians in this church who would be more than happy to have that kind of conversation with you.
But let's take a moment to just pray and, and be honest with the Lord about who we are and where we're at in life right now. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the amazing grace that you've shown through your word and you've shown in our lives time and time and time again, Lord. Lord, I pray that um, whatever we're going through, whatever these people are going through, whatever sin or consequences that we may have to face, you would give us the faith to still trust you, to still pray, to still ask for your forgiveness, to still ask for your deliverance, and to still find a way to seek your face, knowing that you have already done it all to save us. I pray that people would turn from their sin right now, entrust their lives to you, and continue after you with the hope that this life isn't everything, that there is something beyond this, and that all your plans that you have for your people are good and right. And we can know that you love us because of what Christ did at the cross. Pray that you would impress that on our hearts right now. In Jesus' name, amen.